Section 33 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World's Story, Volume 11, Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 33. The Battle of Lundy's Lane, 1814, by Agnes C. Lott. In 1814, the American troops crossed the Niagara River and advanced against General Ryall at Lundy's Lane. General Drummond, who was in Kingston, pushed on to the aid of General Ryall. The latter had begun a retreat, but this was stopped on the appearance of reinforcements, and between five o'clock in the afternoon and midnight, the bloodiest battle of the war was fought. The Editor Drummond comes from Kingston with 400 fresh men. Also, he calls on the people to leave their farms and rally as volunteers to the last desperate fight. This increased his troops by another thousand, though many of the volunteers were mere boys who scarcely knew how to hold a gun. Then, from a dozen signs, Drummond's practiced eye foresaw that a forward movement was being planned by the enemy without Chauncey's cooperation. All the American baggage was ordered to the rear. False attacks to draw off observation are made on Fort George outposts. American scouts are seen reconnoitering the backcountry. Drummond rightly guessed that the attack was being planned in one of two directions, by rounding through the backcountry either to fall in great numbers on Fort George, or to cut between the Canadian Army of Hamilton Region and of Niagara Region, taking both battalions in the rear. From Fort George to Queenston, Canadian troops are posted by Drummond, and where the road called Lundy's Lane runs from the falls at right angles to the back country, more battalions are ordered on guard against the advance of the invaders. Fitzgibbon, the famous scout, climbing a tree on top of a high hill, Seize the Americans, 5,000 of them, gray coats, blue coats, white trousers, moving up from Chippewa toward Lundy's Lane. Quickly, 1,600 Canadian troops under General Ryall take possession of a hill fronting Lundy's Lane and the falls. On the hill is a little brown church and an old-fashioned graveyard. In the midst of the graves, the Canadian cannon are posted. Round the cemetery runs a stone wall screened by shrubbery and on both sides of Lundy's Lane are endless orchards of cherry and peach and apples, the fruit just beginning to redden in the summer sun. Whether the enemy aim at Fort George or Hamilton, the Canadian position on Lundy's Lane must be passed and captured. As soon as Drummond had Fitzgibbon's report, he sent messengers galloping for Hercules Scott, who had been ordered to retreat to the lake, to come back to Lundy's Lane with his 1,200 men. It may be imagined that the Americans guessed what message the horseman in the slather of foam was bearing back to Hercules Scott, for they at once attacked the Canadians in Lundy's Lane with fury to capture the guns on the hill before Hercules Scott's reinforcements could come. It was now six o'clock in the evening of July 25th, a sweltering hot night, and the troops on both sides were parched for water. Though the roar of the whole inland oceans of water could be heard pouring over the falls of Niagara. As the Canadians had charged against the American guns at Chippewa, so now the Americans charged uphill against the guns of the Canadians, hurling their full strength against the enemy's center. 
Creeping under the shelter of the cemetery stone walls, the bluecoats would fire a volley of musketry, jump over the fence, dash through the smoke, bayonet in hand, to capture the Canadian guns. Time, time again the rush was dauntlessly made, and time, time again met by the withering blast. Before nine o'clock, the attacking lines had lost more than 500 men, and as many Canadians had fallen on the hill. The dead and mangled lay literally in heaps. As the darkness deepened, lit only by the wan light of a fitful moon and the awesome flare of volley after volley, the fearful screams of the dying could be heard above the roar of the falls and the whistle of cannonball. Ryle, the commander of the Canadians, had been wounded and captured. Of his 1,600 Canadians, Drummond had now left only 1,000, and he was himself bleeding from a deep wound in the neck. Half the American officers had been carried from the field injured, and still the command was repeated to rush the hill before Scott's reinforcements came, and each time the advancing line was driven back, shattered and thinned, Canadians dashing in pursuit, cheering and whooping, till both armies were so inextricably mixed it was impossible to hear or heed commands. It was in one of these melees that Ryle, the Canadian, found himself among the American lines and was captured to the wild and jubilant shouting of the boys in blue and gray. Pause fell after nine o'clock. The Americans were mustering for the final terrible rush. The moon had gone behind a cloud, and the darkness was inky. Then a shout from the Canadian side split the very welkin. Hercules Scott had arrived with his 1,200 men on a run, breathless and tired from a march and countermarch of 20 miles. The Americans took up the yell, for fresh reserves had joined them, too, and Lundy's Lane became a bedlam of ear-shattering sounds. Heavy artillery wagons forcing up the hill at a gallop over the dead and dying. Bombs from the Canadian guns exploding in the darkness. Horses taking fright and bolting from their riders, carrying American guns clear across the line among the Canadians. A wild yell of triumph told that the Americans had captured the hill. For the next two hours, it was a hand-to-hand -hand fight in pitchy darkness. Drummond, the Englishman, could be heard right in the midst of the American lines, shouting, Stick to them, men. Stick to them. Don't give up. Don't turn. Stick to them. You'll have it. And the American officers were found amidst Canadian battalions, shouting stentorian command, Level low. Fire at their flashes. Watch the flash and fire at their flashes. The Americans have captured the Canadian guns, but in the darkness they cannot carry them off. Each side thinks the other beaten, and neither will retreat. In the confusion, it is impossible to rally the battalions, and men are attacking their own side by mistake. Both sides claim victory, and each is afraid to wait what daylight may reveal, for it is no exaggeration to say that at the Battle of Lundy's Lane, the blood of one-third of each side dyed the field. The Canadians, as defenders of their own homes, fighting in the last ditch, dare not retreat. The Americans, having more to risk in numbers, withdraw their troops at two in the morning. Of her 2,800 men, Canada has lost 900 and the American loss is as great. Too exhausted to retire, Drummond's men flung themselves on the ground and slept lying among the dead, heedless alike of the drenching rain that follows artillery fire, of the roaring cataract, of the groans from the wounded. Men awakened in the gray dawn to find themselves unrecognizable from blood and powder smoke, to find in some cases that the comrade whose coat they shared as a pillow lay cold in death by morning. 
While Drummond's men bury the dead in heaps and carry the wounded to Toronto, the invaders have retreated with their wounded to Fort Erie. End of section 33. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Colleen McMahon.